Amen. If you have a Bible, turn with me, please, to the book of 1 John. We'll come back this morning to 1 John chapter 4. Um, go ahead and at the outset, ask you to bear with me. We've been dealing with, I don't know if it's cold, flu, something in our home this week, and I've got congestion, but I think we're on the backside of it, so we will press on. 1 John chapter 4. 1 John chapter 4, verses 1 through 6. It's going to take a couple weeks to get through these verses, and we're going to look at them under the title of Proving and Confessing the Truth. Um, this section, verses 1 through 6 of 1 John 4, read kind of like an interjection of thought. So back in chapter 2, verses 12 through 14, John kind of interjected an exhortation as he was giving these, these tests of morality and it's like he had a thought hit him by the inspiration of the Spirit, and he wrote it. And that's what he does here, because on either side of this, he's talking about brotherly love. So he's not changing topics, but it's an exhortation that goes with the idea of how we ought to love the Lord and love our fellow saints. And the reminder here, the exhortation here that we'll see, is that we need to test the spirits. We need to test and examine the confession and the profession of all people to ensure that they accord with and align with and submit to the truth. The basis of John's exhortation is that false teachers have gone out. False teachers are prevalent. They are in existence, and that is what we see again going on in our day today. There are false teachers, false professors, false converts who will try to lead people astray. They do this by by teaching a false message to assume and amass to themselves power and authority to spread the false message. Our duty is to know that we have an enemy, to identify the enemy, and to stand firm against the enemy. And so really this is providentially a fitting place to, to land in First John as we end a year and as we begin a new year next Lord's Day. Again, the context of this is love, loving one another, love for the saints. And as we think about loving our fellow saints, friends, the exhortation from Scripture is that we ought to be discerning. We, we ought to not just assume that because somebody makes a profession of some kind of faith that they are indeed in Christ. We need to examine, and we'll look at this in the ins and outs of it, but we need to examine what people say to determine whether or not their confession is genuine. So with that, let's read our text, 1 John 4, verses 1 through 6. If you will, please stand with me, if you're able, as we read God's Word. 1 John chapter 4, verse 1, this is holy, inerrant, and inspired Scripture. Beloved, do not believe every spirit. But test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that is his coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. 
but we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. May the Lord write his word upon our hearts. You may be seated. Now join with me and let's go before the Lord in a word of prayer. Father, we come to you and we give you all praise, honor, and glory. Lord, you are worthy of every offering that we can bring. You are worthy to receive all worship from your entire creation. Lord, there are none like you, the sovereign creator and ruler over all things. Pray, Lord, that you would humble our hearts before you today. Pray that you would give us understanding of our sinfulness, our weakness, our frailty, and our great need for your grace. Pray, Lord, as we come to the instruction and exhortation and admonition that comes from your word, pray that you would prepare our hearts and our minds to receive and respond to the truth. Pray that our hearts would be fertile ground, that your word would be planted within us and that you would cause it to grow and to bear fruit. Pray that you would be glorified by us bearing much fruit. We ask for your Holy Spirit's help as we study your word. Lord, there are many challenges and difficulties before us. There are many things that might distract us and take our attention. But we pray, we plead, and we beg that by your Holy Spirit, you would do a mighty, powerful, lasting work in our hearts and lives through your word. And pray, Lord, that You would help us to put away anything that would distract us, anything that would take our attention. Pray that you would identify sin, temptation, weakness, areas for growth in our lives. Pray that by your Spirit's working and for the sake of your glory, you would transform us in those things. Lord, sanctify us by the truth that your word is truth. May we see and savor and glorify Christ more and more today. Pray that you would receive all the glory and honor and praise that is due your name through our time today. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. So being led by the Spirit This is a reminder from John about the importance of believers discerning and distinguishing between falsehood and truth. But not only only distinguishing between falsehood and truth, but between those who are false and those who are true. 
And that's the important note to make clear as we kind of dive into this passage is John is, is telling us that we are distinguishing people who are true and false. It's not just the ideas. It's not just the teachings and the messages of those who are false, but it's those who hold and proclaim to those things that then thereby prove that they do not abide in Christ. True followers of Christ prize and prioritize the Lord's glory, His word, His truth. True believers submit to the Lord's authority and strive in all that we do to be holy just as the Lord is holy. The faults, though, as we see, will build their lives around worldly things, worldly ideas, worldly ideals, and passions, and fleshly desires. They will surround themselves then with faults and worldly people. And what John writes is, is not popular in our day. To engage in this work of discerning not just whether or not an idea is true, but whether or not a person and their profession of faith is true. That's not popular. That will not win you friends in the world today. But it's a clear, commanded principle in Scripture, and we need to submit ourselves to God's Word. We need to be thoughtful. We need to be charitable and patient in these judgments. But dear friends, we must make these discerning judgments. We must see those who are true and those who are false. And John gives us some things to look for, some things to pursue. But we need to apply wisdom and we need to apply our hearts and our minds as we dig through this text to understand how we can prove through testing and confess the truth, the truth of Christ and the whole truth of God's word. Do you notice in the text that the matter of utmost importance is indeed Christ, his person and his work? Because John is writing in the day of the Gnostics and their heresy that Jesus was not fully man. And so at the center of this exhortation is the Lord Jesus Christ himself focus is that Jesus was from God, that he was God, but that he was also fully man, just as he said. And it's important that we latch on to and hold on to that context, because our, our chief and primary duty in looking at scripture is understanding the original intent of the author. And so we're going to do that. We're going to hold on to John's instruction specifically as it pertained to his original audience. But I think this is also one of those cases where after doing that, with that as our primary duty, we can also pull out and broaden out some of this and see some implications and some applications for our day. Because John was writing very specifically, but it was because there was a very specific heresy that the church was faced with and battling against in his day. So kind of our... <clears throat> Our chief goal, our, our thesis, our purpose for today, and Lord willing, next week is to see that Christ's followers test all that they hear. And we overcome the world by holding to the truth and submitting to God's word as proclaimed by his messengers. We test all that we hear 
And we overcome the world by holding to the truth and submitting to God's word as it is proclaimed by God's messengers. And we won't get all of that today. Some of that will come next time. And chiefly, even maybe above all that, we need to understand with that purpose statement that the reason we overcome, we're talking about the means by which we overcome in that statement, the reason we overcome is in verse 4. Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Now this text, it breaks down kind of in two phases, but you guys know I don't want to do a two-point sermon, so it's going to be six points, three this week and three next. But the two phases, John gives a command in verse 1, and then he sets out in verses 2 through 6 and, and contrasts those who are true and those who are false, their message, their character, their master. So how we're going to break this down is with a series of imperative statements, things that we ought to do. So three today and three next week. We'll begin in verse 1 with the imperative statement that we must test the spirits. Test the spirits. Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God because many false prophets have gone out into the world. Now, we don't need to belabor the point today, but I do want to highlight as we kick off that John is writing a pastoral exhortation here. I've highlighted this, I think, a few times throughout this letter, but he begins the, the statement by saying, Beloved, my beloved fellow saints, he's writing to those churches who probably look to him as their pastor and their shepherd, and so he is seeking to instruct and to correct and to encourage, and to protect. Dear friends, that's what any good shepherd does. Correct, encourage, and protect. That's what any loving father does. The, the role of a father is in ways like the role of a shepherd. And, and that is what we are called to do as, as fathers, as men, and those who do or will serve as shepherds in the church. You are to encourage, protect, and lead God's people, and that's what John does, and he does it with utmost love, and he states that love again and again and again because God's people need to know that they're loved when exhortations come strongly. So we're going to move on because I said I wasn't going to belabor that point, so let's think about what John writes in this loving exhortation. It's really a twofold exhortation. He says, don't believe every spirit but test the spirits. But before we can look at that, we've got to understand what are the spirits? Because you can't not believe something. You can't test something that you can't see or hear. You can't see or hear a spirit. So John is using some type of figurative language here. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirit. So what is he getting at? Simon Kistemacher commented here, and I think this is helpful, and there are others who have the same conclusion. He said, we are unable to see a spirit, but we can hear and understand the teachings of that spirit. The word spirit in this context then is equivalent to teaching. Spirits of evil we know can empower people in some way to, to send them out to deliver a message. That, that's the part of the spiritual warfare, the spiritual battle that we face is that evil spirits We'll send people out and deceive them and send them out with a false message. You can't physically examine that spirit, 
but you can examine the message. You can examine the teaching, and you can examine the effects. What does that teaching produce? Does it glorify God? Does it lead God's people greater into personal holiness? Does it lead to confusion? Does it lead to ungodliness? Does it lead people away from the Lord? So when we talk about not believing every spirit and testing the spirits, what we have to see is that we're considering the teaching and the message. So let's consider John's exhortation that he says, do not believe every spirit. This is the importance of practicing discernment. This is an imperative command in Scripture. Do not believe every teaching. Do not believe spiritual instruction from everyone. Really, don't just blindly believe spiritual instruction from anyone, even your favorite and most trusted pastors and commentators. You must examine everything. You must test every spirit against the Scriptures. And this is a fine line to walk. As you consider the the nitty-gritty day-to-day practice of testing the spirits and not believing every spirit, it's a fine line to walk. And it ought to challenge you and stretch you because we ought to have a mindset that we don't want to be overly critical. We don't want to be untrusting. We we want to, to consider and think the best of others. That's what love does. But Scripture says, do not believe every spirit. So this is a bit of a conundrum. It's a bit of a difficult situation because you have these balancing, competing ideas of wanting to believe, wanting to trust, but then the command that you can't just blindly accept. So what do we do? Consider the Bereans, Acts chapter 17. Paul is out on a missionary journey preaching the gospel. He comes to the town of Berea after being run out of Thessalonica. Acts 17, verse 10 and following, it says, The brethren immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. When they arrived, they went into the synagogue of the Jews. And now these were more noble-minded than those in Thessalonica, for they received the word with great eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. And therefore, many of them believed, along with a number of prominent Greek women and men. They received the word with eagerness. This is kind of the the guardrail and the measuring stick. They received it with eagerness, but they continually searched the scriptures to see if what they were told was true. We must have hearts and minds that are eager to be instructed, that are eager even to be reproved and rebuked by the word, but we need to also test the Spirit's. We need to start at the base level. We're eager. We want to receive the truth, but we're not just going to take everything that someone tells us as the truth, even if they bring a few Bible verses in with it and even bring a little bit of the Scripture to bear. And and we'll see some of how this can be dangerous in a little bit. So to apply this thought, ask yourself the question. Again, this is I think helpful at this time, you know, a lot of people like to make New Year's resolutions and, and kind of plan and make goals for a year ahead, and there's nothing 
wrong with that? But as you think about that, do you read your Bible? Do you come to, not just do you read your Bible, there's more to come, but I'm, I'm having to stop and take breaths every now and then. Do you read your Bible? Do you come to church with a planned, expected, prepared intention and desire to be corrected by the Word? So not just do you read your Bible every day, do you come to church every week, but when you open God's Word, when you gather with God's people, do you have a prepared intention to be corrected and reproved and rebuked by the Scripture? Or do you just show up and think, man, I hope the, the Sunday school teacher, I hope the preacher has something to encourage me and, and spur me on. No, you must prepare your heart. You can't just go about your life six days a week, wake up on Sunday, have a mad dash to arrive at church, and then expect the Lord to do something great. The Lord can. The Lord is greater and more powerful and mighty and so gracious that he can accomplish whatever he so chooses. But you cannot expect his spirit to move in your heart through his word if you are not prepared. Dear friend, the same thing goes for your Bible study every day of the week at home. You don't just run off to a room and pick up a Bible and read a few verses and expect the Lord to transform your life. Again, he may do that and praise the Lord if he does. But you need to receive eagerly the word, eager preparation to be reproved, instructed, corrected in the way that you should live. Coming back to our main idea, it's not popular today, this idea that we ought to be discerning and require proof. But it's a biblical principle. The call to be discerning is a biblical principle straight off the pages of 1 John chapter 4. And the Berean example is helpful because Luke records this idea of eagerness for us. But we have to understand that to receive the word with eagerness does not mean that you receive the word with an open, unused mind, an undiscerning mind. You can't blindly receive instruction. You have to engage your mind to see whether or not these things are true. You could use a study Bible with notes to help you as you, as you study. But those notes, as, as you've heard others discuss before, are not inspired. They are the notes of men, and they may very well be helpful, but you have to examine everything against the truth and the very word of God. Simply, you must walk by and depend upon the Spirit to enlighten and illuminate your mind because deceivers, dear friend, are much smarter than you. The power of Satan, the deception of Satan is much greater than anything that you can withstand on your own. So therefore, you must walk by the Spirit and he will give you understanding. What do we read? He will lead you and guide you into all truth. That's why he's our helper. That's why it was better for us that Jesus went away because he sent his spirit to dwell in us and help us and comfort us 
and rebuke us and enlighten us. Dear friends, you must walk by the Spirit. And so this is one side of the coin. Do not believe every spirit. And John says, but test the spirits. Test the spirits to see whether they are from God. Again, let me point you one more time to the Bereans. They received it with eagerness, but they tested everything they heard against the scriptures. What does test mean? That word in the Greek Vines Dictionary says it's to test with a view toward approving. Okay, that's important, and that's helpful to test with a view toward improving. We talked about that we don't want to be overly critical because a critical, nagging spirit, let me tell you, dear friend, will weigh your soul down so much that you will have the joy of God sucked right out of your life if you are overly critical. And I can tell you that from example. And and my younger years, especially those early years as an engineer, I, w- I was a critical person, and, and it sucks the life out of you. Test with a view toward approving. Now, there's one clear caveat to give you there. Once someone proves that they're not faithful, once someone proves that they cannot be trusted, then you don't need to really view what they say with a, the goal of approving it because they've already shown you who they are. There are so many false teachers today. There are so many who are on TV, who have books, who have podcasts, who have every source of media under the sun available to you, and they're false teachers, they're known false teachers, and you don't need to give them the benefit of the doubt because that's how a false teacher brings people in is that you're assuming the best and they hook you in and then they've got you and then they lead you astray. I think the primary guardrail here, and I'll say especially for new believers, but let's understand that if we want to push this off only on new believers and say, oh, well, I'm more mature in the faith. I don't necessarily need to do this. Well, then you're really back at that stage of infancy. But the guardrail is the pursuit of humility, the pursuit of the realization that you don't know everything, that you don't have the strength and the ability to fight this battle on your own. It's a low view of yourself, a high view of God and his word. If you want to avoid being overly critical, but if you also want to avoid running off into this ditch of just receiving every teaching, test the spirits with a heart and a spirit yourself of humility. One of the ways that we test instruction is by considering its purity and its value. One of the commentators I read said that this word test was used to refer to a metallurgist examining metals to test their purity and value. And I don't use personal anecdotes much, but I actually think I have something helpful for this to kind of illustrate. So think about a metallurgist, somebody that tests metals to see what they're made of. They, they know how to bring metals together to make specific things. Well, in my past life as an engineer, one of the jobs I had right out of college was doing a decent bit of metallurgical work. And one thing I learned very quickly is you can have all the expensive equipment, you can have all the textbooks in the world, 
But if you don't have the standard for what that metal is supposed to be, you can use a $100,000 piece of equipment to tell you everything that makes up that metal, but you have no idea if it's good or not. You have no idea if it's suitable. You need to know the standard. Take this illustration even a little bit further. There are some materials that the difference is extremely, extremely small. There, there are stainless steels that differ in their carbon makeup by 0.05%. Completely different uses, completely different ability to machine and mold and shape and make these things, and they have completely different applications. But the only way you know that is from the standard. It's what we must use when we test the spirits. The standard, God's word, his truth, all of it, every jot, every tittle. Does the instruction from this spirit that you're examining, does it align with the revealed word of God? Does it accord with the character of God? Does it promote things like personal sanctification and personal holiness? Those are the questions you ask as you test the spirits, and you do that in submission to, in understanding of, against the backdrop of the scriptures. The church, dear friends, has a role in this, in this testing. The church, Paul said, is what? The pillar and the buttress of the truth. We're the pillar, the buttress, the support, and the proclaimer of this standard. We must be diligent in this work. We must be diligent to test the spirits and to do this testing in accordance with the scriptures. But why? Why do we do this work? Why, why are we called to filter out what is false and, and hold on to what is true? You know, couldn't we just accept everything? Couldn't we be more accepting and, and, and more inclusive, less exclusive? The answer, you know, is absolutely not. Because many false prophets have gone out into the world. That's what John says. Many false prophets have gone out into the world. This ought to be a warning. Okay, we've already stressed the importance not to be a skeptic, not to be overly critical. But now the opposite side of that coin that needs to balance our thought process is that many false teachers have gone out into the world and they will seek to devour even and especially you as a Christian. They're sent out by the chief deceiver, Satan himself. They will do his building, bidding, and they will spread his false message. You, dear friend, must stand firm. It's a real enemy that we face. It's a real war, a real battle that we fight. What did Paul say in 2 Corinthians 10? Hopefully you know these words almost by heart. By memory, for though we walk in the flesh, we do not war according to the flesh. The weapons of our warfare are not flesh. 
They're divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. We're destroying speculations and every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God. And we're taking captive every thought, making it obedient to Christ. That's the battle that we fight. When you test the spirits, you are waging war against fortresses of evil. You're waging war against every lofty thing raised against the knowledge of God, and we battle against every thought to take it captive and to make it obedient to Christ. And in this age in which we live, that battle is every day, it's every moment, it's in every aspect of life. You can't let your kids go turn on much even on TV without battling against worldviews that are utterly, utterly unbiblical. Everything we do, you must wage this war. This battle we fight, we must know that for which we are fighting. So the second imperative, moving to verse 2, is that we must confess the truth. Test the spirits, confess the truth. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. By this we know. By this you know the Spirit of God. Not by this you might know. Not by this you'll start to have a little bit of an inclination, but by this you will have sure, trustworthy knowledge that the Spirit is from God or alternatively is from Satan. And what's the statement? Is that every spirit that confesses Christ has come in the flesh is from God. The Lord doesn't leave us helplessly striving and seeking to discern between truth and error. Dear friends, he's given us a book. He's given us his word that is sufficient, as Peter said, for all life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him, through the revelation of his word. It's a formidable enemy that we fight. It, it is, we, we are in the minority as true, genuine followers of Christ today. And, and the world is just going at a breakneck pace in and towards evil, utter debauchery. But the Lord has given you everything pertaining to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. When we apply the word, walking in the spirit, you will be able to discern between truth and falsehood. Do you understand that our world values, uh, you could come up with any number of things that the world values, but two things the world values is open-mindedness and those who do not take hard stands. If you, if you want to go from here and be liked by the world, be open-minded and don't take a stand for anything, because that's what the world prioritizes and values. But John says, by this you know the Spirit of God. Strive to know everything that you're able to know. Don't walk around with this open-mindedness that the world desires just so you can be friends with the world. Friendship with the world is hostility toward God, because God says you can know what is good and right 
and true and what is evil and corrupt and sinful. Strive to know. You know the Spirit of God because every spirit that confesses Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And this was John's specific instruction to the saints of his day. The, the Gnostics would undermine the, the personhood of Jesus. The Gnostics said that that spirit was good, flesh was effectively evil. And in light of that denial, John says that those who are true are easily identifiable. Because against that heresy, the, the argument is clear and easy that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh, truly God and truly man. Those who confess the truth, those who confess the whole truth, those who do not waver upon nor cloud any clear gospel truth, those are the ones who are from God. Confesses, in verse 2, is the Greek word homo logeo. Homo logeo, it means to say the same thing as another. Again, let me give you a Greek definition from a dictionary that will be helpful. It means to declare openly by way of speaking out freely. It's a confession being the effect of deep conviction of facts. Spoken freely and openly as being a deep conviction about facts. That is how we need to speak of Jesus Christ. Clearly, plainly, openly, and deeply convinced and convicted of who he is and what he accomplished. That is the spirit that is from God, the one who speaks truly about Christ. Let me draw out of this just a, a thought, maybe a warning for us, is that those who don't speak with clear conviction, they need to be received and handled with care. Because when we speak God's word, it's not my authority that's being spoken right now. It's the authority of the truth. If we get to the bottom of what the truth means, we speak it with clear conviction. Somebody who preaches or teaches the word without clear conviction needs to be handled with care. Because we are confessing, we are saying the same thing as God says in his revealed word. People can speak falsehood with conviction. So again, we need to handle this idea with care. But when someone speaks with clear conviction about revealed biblical truth, that proclamation ought to be trusted and received. And things that deserve an open mind and matters that deserve, I think, even extra humility because some things are just not as plain in Scripture as others. But we need to be clear and steadfast on things like the gospel, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We need to be clear on the Lord's call to personal holiness. Jesus said, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. Those things ought to be preached and taught and lived with clear conviction. So John's scope here is obviously limited. Talked about this a little bit at the outset. He is speaking to a people dealing with a specific 
heretical teaching. But here's what I, I want to broaden out carefully just a little bit. Thinking about confession of all of the truth. Not, not just this plainly revealed truth about Jesus, but really our goal ought to be a clear confession of all of God's revealed truth. Because if any of God's clear revealed truth is undone, the, the whole thing unravels. The whole house falls down. It becomes a house of cards and you remove one card and, and it all falls down if all of it is not true. Listen to a podcast, um, I don't know, it was a few months ago now. I have recently in my notes, but it's probably been three months ago, uh, from the MacArthur Center. It was about theological triage, this idea of how do you deal with theological disagreement. And I would suggest you listen to that episode. It's helpful. You may not hear it and agree with everything. You don't have to agree with everything. You need to examine everything in light of Scripture. But I think it's helpful in thinking through theological disagreement. Some will say that, and they'll even point to this passage, that the only first-level issue is the gospel. The only first-level theological issue is the gospel of Jesus Christ, who he is and, and what he accomplished. And it's hard to disagree with that idea right, right off the cuff. It's hard to say, yeah, there, there are other things that are important as the gospel because you get the gospel right, then you're, you're on the right track. You're in the faith. But when we think about theological issues on a local church level, there are a lot more issues than just the gospel that are first-level issues. A Presbyterian could not be a member at a Baptist church if that Baptist church holds to a Baptist confession because they don't practice baptism the same. So what this idea then, if you, if you kind of draw it out, you think that those who we may disagree with even on significant issues, some of those still may be in Christ. Think about charismatics. Some charismatics, they, they don't believe the same thing that we do about spiritual gifts, but there are those who love Christ, they confess Christ, they've given their life to Christ, and they belong to him. You think about Arminians. They don't believe the same thing we do about election and, and predestination. But I think we all in here probably know Arminians who are absolutely faithful Christians who love the Lord. Even those pesky Presbyterians who want to baptize their babies, who don't understand what the word baptizo actually means, even those, especially those, are brothers and sisters, many of them who are in Christ. But we need to have discernment, friends. That, that's what the, the point here is that when we disagree with important issues as a local church, we need to be discerning. We, we need to receive instruction carefully. There, there are things going on in the evangelical community today that a lot of the split is because of end times views. A, a lot of how people wind up on one side or the other of the debate of Christian nationalism. Now, I'm talking conservative, right-minded people. A lot of the ways that people end up on one side or the other is because of their eschatological views. We need to be discerning because your doctrine drives your practice. What you believe drives your life. 
We need to be careful about things like Christ, the Trinity, creation, baptism, the authority and sufficiency of Scripture. We don't want to be theological prudes that just look to separate over every little item. That's never the goal. The goal is that the world sees us and knows us by our love for one another. But we need and we want to be biblical. Any conviction you have ought to be able to be changed. Not because somebody comes and gives you a convincing argument, but because they show you in Scripture why what you believe is not biblical. If you believe something and it's not biblical, you need to change that conviction. When you're younger in the faith, you need to lean upon more mature saints to, to help identify what these issues are. As you mature, as you grow, you can identify these things a little bit more on your own. But when you're new in the faith, when you're young in the faith, you need to be careful to go and just start naming issues that you're going to divide over because you've not been through the battles, you've not been through the wars, you don't know the ins and outs of every position. That's why having trusted, faithful, decades-long Christians leading and guiding you is necessary and important. So we need to test the spirits. We need to confess and hold to the truth. And all of this becomes important when we come to the third imperative. We need to identify the faults. Verse 3, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist of which you have heard that is coming and is now already in the world. We must test the spirits, we must confess the truth, and we must identify the faults. How do we do that? We examine their confession. It's so plain and so clear, but it can't really only be the confession, the, the confession can't reasonably be divorced from the life that the confession produces. The Gnostics rejected the humanity of Christ. They did it in a deceitful, deceptive way, but they plainly rejected Christ. We need to identify that rejection of their confession, but we also need to see how dangerous it was. Think about what Scripture clearly teaches. All have sinned. Man's nature is corrupt. Man's nature is sinful from the beginning, from when Adam and Eve fell, from when Adam fell and, and his sinful nature was imparted to all humanity, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so the Gnostics, they took that biblical fact and they twisted and perverted something about Christ. Christ was the exception to this. He was fully, truly man. He did not sin. He was like us in all things. He was tempted in all things as we are, yet without sin. The Gnostics twisted this glorious truth of the Messiah, and they turned it into something that caused them to reject the Savior church's collective duty is to see this failure to confess the truth and to reject it, to resist it, 
to see the danger of creating a false Jesus because of false teaching. And we need to realize that this confession can't be divorced from life. A life submitted to Christ results in godliness. Rejection of Jesus produces a life that disregards his commands. Living for Christ, giving your life to Christ as Lord and Master, produces a life that, yes, you are still going to battle against the flesh, but you are made more and more like your Savior. Part of our evaluation of someone's confession needs to be to see how that confession affects their lives. Why do these not confess the truth? Why do some refuse to confess that Jesus is the Christ? John says this is the spirit of the Antichrist. They're against Christ. They don't believe him. That's the spirit of John's day. It's the spirit of the world. In our day today, they reject the notion of Christ just as has always been the case. That is the enemy that we are up against. We must acknowledge that this falsehood is out there, and we must prepare ourselves to stand and fight against it. We must do the diligent work of approving what is true in order to be able to identify and reject what is false. John says that those spirits were told to be coming. He says now they're already present in the world. This is God's world. He is the sovereign, all-powerful ruler over his creation. But he allows Satan to make progress with his deception because in the end, Christ is going to absolutely crush the great deceiver and the Lord is going to be glorified in that. We can deny Satan's active working if we want to to feel safer and more comfortable. feels better not to consider the evil that goes on because of Satan's deception and his wickedness and his hatred of God. So you can deny that if you want. You'll be wrong and you won't be ready to fight your war. Or you can affirm the truth. You can gird yourselves with the truth. And we can go to war every day against evil, against all the powers of Satan. Not that there's an enemy at the gate trying to get into the city. The enemy's in the city. The enemy's on the scene. The battle is already here. You've got to fight. You don't have an option. You fight for your spiritual life every day. You get up every day and you put on that spiritual armor, ready to stand firm in the strength of God's might and take the battle to Satan. You're armed with the sword of the Spirit, the very word of God. Again, we won't get to the last three imperatives today, but I want to draw your attention in closing to verse 4 for just a moment. Because this is a grave battle that we fight. If you actually consider what you're up against, it ought to bring great fear to you. Look at verse 4. You are from God, little children, and you have overcome them. 
Because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. Greater is the one in you than this one in the world. The, one, the reason that you are able to go to battle every day is because the Holy Spirit of God is in you. If you are in Christ, if you have repented of your sins, placed your faith and trust and hope in the work that Jesus accomplished at Calvary's cross where he bore your sin, took the punishment, he went to the grave, and then he was risen again on the third day. If that is your hope, if that is your trust and your belief, then you have his spirit in you. And greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. There's a battle, and we must fight. We must stake our claim upon the truth. Do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. We need not be fearful in this battle, but we need to be alert and aware and willing to fight in the strength that God supplies. To close this morning, close really this year, reading 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15. I'll read that, then I'll pray, and I'll turn it over to Clark to serve the Lord's Supper. 1 Peter 1, 13 through 15. Consider this in light of the battle that we fight against Satan. Therefore, prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lust which were yours in your ignorance. But like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior. Like the Holy One who called you, be holy in all of your behavior. Prepare your minds, keep sober in spirit, and fix your hope on the grace to be revealed at the revelation of Christ. Let's pray.